You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Okay, I have a question for you. When you were growing up, what do you think happened that gave you a sense of confidence? Like what types of things built build your confidence oh man i don't know that it was like one thing but um a a lot of different things or gave me confidence i think playing sports gave me confidence martial arts definitely gave me confidence uh i think like you taught me a lot of things that i quickly realized were um not normal for, for kids to know like or do, do you like you, you taught me to behave, how to behave in public and how to interact with adults and how to speak confidently, like talking to strangers, talking in front of groups. I was always very confident doing that because you would make me do it even when I was really, really young. Mm-hmm. Um, so that gave me, I don't know, a lot of, I, I remember we, we would drive in the cars and I would continue to ask you questions. Uh, anytime we were driving somewhere, it was a series of, I'm, um, testing you on geography or I'm testing you on history or testing you on politics or state, you know, state facts or, you know, whatever it was. And I'm surprised at how many kids that I would talk to that would be your age who knew absolutely nothing about the world around them. Yeah. You, it, you, you spent a lot of time um, teaching us things that you thought were important that I wasn't going to learn in school. And, and that gave me a lot of confidence in, it in academically it gave me a lot of confidence in the way that I presented myself. Yeah, of course, there were times when I was a young kid that I wasn't very confident um, in certain areas. But I think that carried over into adulthood and being, you know, in a career where obviously we're talking to tons of strangers every day when we do right. this show and when I talk with my clients and present to to audiences and in auditoriums and things like that. It, it's easier for me to. It's never phased me, you know, right. ever since I was a kid. Right. Um, and I think a lot of it is because of what you, you pushed me to do uncomfortable things uh, a lot. And when I was, became an adult, doing uncomfortable things was not something that I had to teach myself to enjoy. It was something that I had always done. Well, I think our parents' role is, as we look at working ourselves out of a job as a parent is to make sure we're instilling appropriate confidence in our kids. And so that, that's a decision I tried to make. Yeah, you, and you we did it. Talked about that with Dan. Um, we talked about that with our guest today, Dan. Yeah, Dan Caldwell is um, a highly, highly accomplished entrepreneur, and he was the visionary founder of Tap Out, a renowned brand in the mixed martial arts industry. If you ever watched a UFC fight <laughs> in your you life, saw, you saw you Dan. know Tap Out. Uh, Dan propelled Tap Out to remarkable achievements establishing it as a prominent name in the field as now the host of the Pretty and Punk podcast. Dan delves into the intersection of business and parenthood, sharing valuable insights and personal experiences. Through his podcast and entrepreneurial ventures, Dan continues to make a significant impact, offering a unique perspective on achievement, parenthood, and living a fulfilling life. Um, We talked about so many great topics. Obviously, we talked about the history of Tap Out, how it became one of the most prominent clothing brands and certainly the most prominent clothing brand in uh, mixed martial arts world. Uh, what his Even journey extended was like, beyond that too. Yeah. yeah, what his journey was like 
starting that company, what his journey was like, uh, selling that company after the death of Charles Lewis, his co-founder, um, and what Dan went through mentally and going through that significant life transition. Uh, near the end of our talk, we we do- dove more into family life and and the intersection of entre- the entrepreneur's journey and and the father's journey and and. We got into some great topics there. Obviously, Dan uh, had a lot in common with us uh, in that topic. So stick around. This is one of my favorite conversations that we've had on the show. Uh, Dan is one of the most insightful characters we've had the pleasure of talking to and has one of the best stories. So hang out with us for a little bit. You'll learn something. You'll laugh a little bit. I'm Sanger Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. So I think, Dan, you you and Sean are the only people that I could address as an obscenity on this show and have that received well. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've called me a lot worse than punk ass. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like I, I, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't used it lately, but uh, <laughs> I, bet, I bet not. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> My kid calls me that every once in a while. But well, so how did how did that originate? Take me back because I want to talk about your kids. I want to talk about the work you're doing right now. But take me back to yeah. uh, that time when <laughs> Punkass originated, and you were starting tap out. It actually started before that. You know, I originally wanted to be a police officer. So going through uh, through high school, well, I wanted to be an entrepreneur too. So I was taking, um, I lied about my address to go to a different high school where they had actually had law enforcement classes, but they also had um, entrepreneurial classes there. It was like the rich kids high school. I, I, w- I lived kind of in a, in a bad area town and uh, my high school didn't have that type of stuff. So I'd lied about my address, use my friend's address so I could go to this high school. And I took this law enforcement class and decided, like, I, I need to be doing that. But I was a skater at the time. I had I have a tattoo on my inside of my lip that says punk ass, and that's kind of where the name came from. So it just kind of stuck. <laughs> I didn't end up using it later. Of course, I wouldn't show anybody. I became a police officer, so I was a police officer for, like, seven years. And, uh, of course, I didn't show that to anybody then. No. But, uh, but later down the road, when the opportunity came up and, we were kind of looking to make up nicknames. Uh, that was the nickname I got. So how did you, Sanger and I, before we got on, on air, we're talking about uh, Tap Out because, you know, Sanger uh, is constantly showing me MMA fights and things like that. And uh, I, he, I had to convince him, just like you and the rest of the squad had to convince the world, yeah. I had to convince him that it wasn't cockfighting. So it's been a long 20-year <laughs> journey for us of me kind of bringing Sean into the fold of normal MMA fans. Well, that's what it was when, when MMA started, that's, that's what it was. I mean, you're going to get, you're going to rough. Well, it was for sure. I mean, if you watch, if you go back and watch UFC one or two, one and two, especially one and two, um, you'll people, you know, it's cringe. I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll have to like, uh, I mean, it is, it's a different sport at that time. Yeah. But for us, in 1993, I was in the police academy, and me and my partner, our best friend, was in the police academy. We were both, um, you know, trying to trying to be police officers. Um, we weren't hired at the time, and uh, so we were putting ourselves through. We were paying for ourselves to go through the police academy. 
And during the police academy, he got hired for the for the San Bernardino Sheriff's Department. I got hired for the police department. And he uh, he told me he came to me one day and he said, "Hey man, there's this big event coming on about mixed martial arts." And we were training at the time. We were kind of like going to my backyard. I was living um, with another police officer, and uh, we we would go in our backyard. We had a heavy backpack there, and we'd go train and worked out. And so he came over and said, "This event's coming on tonight. We got to watch this. It's on this pay per view thing." And we were trying to figure out how to watch it. We ended up watching it. And it blew us away. We couldn't believe what they were doing on there. And it is, it is a lot of shock. Um, but it's law enforcement. It's real stuff. You know, if you think about what law enforcement goes through, yeah, people true. don't want to know with what they have to deal with. And so um, we said, we need to be training in that. We need to be doing that. And a week later, we were training with Voice Gracie in Torrance, California. And uh, it just, it gripped us. It, it, it took over our lives. Everything we did, even after we became police officers, and that was that was a great time, you know, learning law enforcement, going out on patrol. He was in the jails, but I was going out on patrol, and uh, it just that took over our lives. But every waking moment that we had, other than at being at work, um, we were training, we were learning about jujitsu and learning about uh, MMA. At that time, it was called No Holds Barred. Yeah. And uh, it just took over our lives, and it ultimately why we we started Top Out because it was such a big part of our lives that you know, like any business person, you want to. Um, every cop has a side hustle, so every cop you'll ever meet, just ask them what a side hustle is. They all have them, and and that was our side hustle. And we said, hey, let's just start a little T-shirt company. It just turned out to be big. You know, the start of that is. Very similar to uh, another guest we had on on the show uh, a few months back, Brian Smith, who started UGG Boots. And it, same kind of thing. He started selling them right out of the trunk of his car, you know, on the beach in California, and it just exploded. It, it, is that how that developed? We kind of, you know, literally out of the trunk of the car at MMA fights. Did, yeah, then- did you have any idea how how big it could be. It seems, you know, looking back that in 1997, it would have been hard to imagine what the sport would become. Yeah. I mean, I think both, we had both thoughts, you know, in some ways you were like, um, we would talk about, we're going to sell a million shirts, but I remember sitting one day and trying to figure out what it would, how many employees and how many people it would take to sell a million shirts and how many shirts we'd have to actually have that sell a million shirts and how, how much money it would cost to print those shirts before we sent them out. And um, I remember just being blown away. Like, there's no way, I can't even imagine us having that many employees. How are we ever going to do that? Um, but at the same time, we knew, we just knew in our gut, you know, when you have a great feeling about something, yeah. you just know in your gut, this is going to be huge. Because, and I, it's so funny, I just, I was watching, um, um, an interview with Mark Zuckerberg and I think it was Mark and um, he was talking about how everybody he just started training jiu-jitsu and he said everybody I introduce to jiu-jitsu comes and starts training I have like a hundred percent win rate on showing my friends jiu-jitsu and then they want to come train and that's how and when he said that I was like it brought me right back to that moment when we were doing that and we were showing it to our friends in law enforcement and every single one of them, I mean, I have friends 
that became like I'm not a black belt in jujitsu, but they became black belts in jujitsu before I did because they just so many people, everybody we showed it to, all of a sudden became you know huge fans of mixed martial arts and and jujitsu, and so knowing that how sticky it was. I just believe that it was going to be big. And we would always talk about that. Like, this is going to blow up because it can't help but rise to cream rises to the top. Yeah. This can't help but rise to the top because everybody loves to watch it. Yeah. There's something that happens when, uh, as entrepreneurs, we follow both what we are passionate about and then what we know is resonant, right? Like that, that was resonating, even though, most of the country had never heard of it. A, a good 90% of the country that maybe had heard of MMA was actively lobbying to get political regulation to get it off the <laughs> off the TVs, yeah, you yeah. know? I mean, yeah, remember... Which worked when, in its favor, I think, you know? Yeah, you know, I yeah. remember when, when jo- I used the term cockfighting earlier, that's what John McCain called it. Yeah. You know, he ended up running for president about 10 years after he called it human cockfighting. They were, they were trying yeah. to erase the sport. Um, but it, it couldn't be stopped because it was resonating so much with people. And, and that's been my experience too. You know, my friends who come, who come to the gym with me and, and try out jujitsu, they, they stick around, uh, almost always, almost always. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's true. It's great when those two pieces that you said, that's perfectly said, like when those two things intersect, you know, your passion and something that's resonating with the world intersect together because you know how many times do you have passions that are like um i i have a passion for collecting like uh star wars figures but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be you know like this huge thing um so but <laughs> but this was that thing that i knew that i mean me and my partner would just we would sit in i could never sit in carl's jr within in corona california and we would sit in in, and we would have lunch there. And by the time we were done talking, we were having dinner there too. I mean, we would just talk about how big this thing is going to be. And then ultimately in 2001, when the Fertitas bought it, it was just game over at that point. We were so excited. We were just all in. Um, I quit my job, I think, the next year uh, just going, hey, this is going to be it. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. That's all. That's an incredible, incredible story to turn a side hustle into not just your full-time job, but a, a business that's like instantly recognizable around, yeah, name the, around the world. You know, I mean, tap out pretty quickly became um, synonymous with the UFC, synonymous with MMA as a sport in a way that n- no other brand really has been able to do um, or very few brands have been able to do with their sport. You know, maybe like some golf apparel brands are, are very closely associated with golf or like Air Jordan is so... Uh, so associated with basketball, but uh, that's a very, very difficult thing to do. And, and it, it happened for y'all and tap out from the perspective of a, an MMA fan, like deserves a lot of credit for the success of the sport because being able to show it off, being able to go out and rep, wear a tap out shirt to, you know, dinner with your friends on a Friday it, like it said something about who you were as a person and it, it was a little subtle advertisement for the sport without directly advertising the sport and directly advertising the, um, the, the organization, the UFC, right? Like I think without tap out in that critical period of the early two thousands for the UFC, it's way harder for the UFC and, and 
necessarily MMA as a sport to see that type of growth that it had at that very, very critical period where it was taking a big leap. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to feel like we played a part in that for sure. Um, you know, people used to call, they'd, they'd see all oh, your, and they'd see our shirts and they uh, didn't always know we were the owners. And they would, oh, you're the, that's those tap out fights, right? And then, yeah, like, they would call, know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course, we didn't correct anybody, yeah, of you know, course we not. wanted to think that. But we did, we, I mean, we talked about that. There's people, you know, I think we all, as business owners, you derive inspiration from other companies. And we were always, I mean, we were always talking about, you know, we want to be what not, Nike is to basketball. We want to be that to mixed martial arts. And it was, I mean, it was a, I remember getting some info back from a board meeting about Nike talking about tap out and what we were doing at tap out and uh, that conversation coming up when we were like, we thought that was the biggest thing ever when we thought when, when all of a sudden we find out Nike's talking about us in their board meetings, um, you know, because that they were always the thing. They were always what we were looking at we We're And I remember my partner used to say, you know, just to, just a dream of being, just nike we were we want to surpass nike we want to be better and bigger than that and you know it all didn't you know there are things that got sideways and didn't always turn out the way we wish they would have turned out you know of course my partner was killed in 2009 in a car accident and so that stuff took away from that but um i i i always cherish those dreams that we had when we were pushing because i think you know, people say, oh, you shoot for the, you know, shoot for the stars and at least I landed on the moon or I'll yeah. paraphrase, but, uh, you know, I mean, that's kind of what, how it turned out for us. It was, yeah, we were always shooting big. We were always believing big, but at the same time, we were always scared to death because things were, you know, we, it was a, we were firefighters. We were constantly putting out fires. We didn't have, we were self-capitalized we were all making all those decisions ourselves. We never printed a shirt in our life, and never start owned a business in our life. Really, you guys didn't. You said you're self capitalized. You guys didn't have to go out and get external financing to to grow the business. No, we were all self capitalized, living off uh, you know twenty thousand dollar credit card that we just happened to have that we maxed out and went out early. You know, pretty much on. Um, So we were just really about relationships and you know selling our shirts online we were like one of the first we were i i consider us the first clothing online retailer nobody was doing clothing online retail at the time in 1997 98 i think we built our site in 90, early 98 and uh, maybe 97 but um that we were the first retail nobody would sell their clothes online at that time you had companies like curly and and other companies out there metal militia but they couldn't sell their clothing online because the retailers were giving too much pushback and they were all in retail. So none of the retailers would let them do online sales. They wanted them to push that all their customers or anybody who went to their website to the retailers. So they would all have like, uh, you know, find out where we're being sold and you click on that and you see the type in your zip code and then you could see the location closest to you that was selling early or metal militia or whatever brand you were looking for. So, but for us, we didn't have any, we weren't in any stores. So we didn't have that luxury. So we were a, a legitimate online retailer in 1998 and we were selling clothing. And everybody thought, I remember everybody we talked to, everybody we told this, said that'll never work. You can't sell clothing online. People need to try it on. Yeah. But we knew in our heads, we're selling t shirts. How many people don't know what size t shirt they wear? Yeah, sometimes they like different fits and stuff. 
But I think they'll they'll learn that, they'll understand that. And uh, so we were an online retailer from the from the yeah, outset. So, so not being and, in stores probably worked. Yeah, you know, I guess worked out to your advantage in a in a weird way is that you could leapfrog right over that and not get that pushback from the retailers and go straight online. Well, that's yeah. I think uh, it helped us grow in a different way. I think uh, um, it, I I I I definitely know the pushback that you get when you're in retail um, that nobody wants any forward thinking in retail. They want what is selling. So there's never, there, there's always a struggle from an artist perspective of when you're trying to create a brand and you want, they always, when you go to the buyers for the retail stores, they're like, what is this? We want what's selling right now in our store. Yeah. Like this is killing it. Like you guys, you have the shirt that sell, you have one shirt that's selling a million shirts. We want more of that. Can you create a different design that looks just like that? Like, how is it different if it looks just like that? We if you yeah. drive us nuts. And but in and, and they're happy online, for you to run that straight want. into the ground. Oh, they, know, want, they that's don't. exactly. I, I'll tell you that that's what's happened. You know, that's what's happened later on after we sold the company. That that's what they do. You know, these guys who d- didn't, you know, don't build the company themselves. They just want to make more of what's already selling. They don't understand that fashion is a moving target. And you can't, you know, you're not going to, it's not something that, you know, you always have to be thinking ahead of everybody. And that's what we, we could do that when we were in, when we were online. And if something didn't work, it was so easy to go, oh, let's throw it up online. You know, and people see that now, you know, you split testing yeah. stuff. We weren't doing split testing back then, but you could do, you could throw something online, see if it works. If it doesn't, you're like, ah, well, I only printed, you know, 40 of them or 48 right. of them. So you know, oh, well, we'll sell what we can. And when they sell, and then we just left them up. It wasn't like you had to like blow them out. You know, everybody else, you know, nowadays you go into retail, they're like, hey, that every square inch is measured. How yeah. much is that square inch worth? We have to sell this product out so we get it out of the way for the new stuff coming in. We were like, ah, just leave it up on the website. We have 48 of them. We'll, set, we'll sell them at full price. We'll just leave them up there. And when they sell, they sell. Yeah, I think Tapa was like on the very, very early wave of more independence in uh, in the business landscape, more independence in fashion. And over the last like 20 years, we've seen a continuing trend of decentralization. You know, there's not only three television channels that you can go watch. There's just not only, we don't all listen to the same musical artists. We don't all watch the same movies. We don't all get our news from the same places. And that's continued to be more and more and more and more fragmented throughout society. And now independent business owners can have so much more success than they ever, ever have been able to. And I think the final roadblock for independent business owners is to be able to be independent, to not have to go through a retailer, right? And the internet was such a, a good equalizer for that. And y'all were man, on the really, really front end. But I like what you're saying about um, balancing the art of uh, the entrepreneurial journey with the, you know, uh, concrete thinking of the, the CFOs of the world, right? The, that, that type of mind is very important to make sure that this can be profitable and you could scale the, uh, scale the business uh, and, and they're going to look at what works and what's selling but the, the artist in all of us who are business owners like has to be able to have its avenue to be able to express. Yeah, you have to you have to be able to step back 
look at, you know, from from 30,000 feet and look at what's going on and what's going on around you, taking inspiration from what's going on around you and where the market's going because it's constantly changing. In 2008, we noticed um, at, during that crash, I think, and I, and I just kind of put my own spin on it. I could be totally wrong on this, but what my spin was, we, at that time, we were printing stuff that like was all over the shirt. Like it was big. And if you go back and look at that time period, you could see all the shirts were overprinted. And um, in 2008, when the crash happened, um, everything pulled back. And I, my reasoning is for that is there was a lot of brand names of people pushing out there. Oh, look at this. You know, I got this $30 shirt on or this $100, you know, pair of jeans on this big old logo, LV logo coming down the side. Well, when your friend's losing his house, you don't necessarily want to talk about yeah. what you, you know, what you're flaunting around. And I think that a lot of people pulled back from that. And you can look at that right at that moment, all the logos went really small. Everything changed on the landscape after the crash in, in 2008. And you could see all the big logos, all the pants with the big, huge, you know, Gucci on the side, all that stuff disappeared for a minute. And of course, it comes back again. You know, all fashion is, it just keeps coming back. But at that time, you could see everything disappeared. And my, my, that was my perspective is that everybody was just pulling back because they didn't want to flaunt that stuff in front of their friends. And so, but at retail in sense, you know, in, in middle America, a lot of that stuff, the old stuff is still working, but we're seeing, you know, it in our area, we were in Los Angeles. And in our area, that stuff was disappearing and everybody was pulling back from that. And everybody was going to just a plain t-shirt or something real small, black on black or a little logo right here. And and so we were trying to go back to that. But of course, the retailers, all the, all of them were having pushback because- Because they, they wanted want you to sell what working, had worked last year. And what's working in middle America yeah. still because they haven't caught up yet. Uh, you know, yeah. the, what's happening in- on the coastlines is already changed, but middle America, where most of your money's made, where most of the you know the, the your customers are, they're still buying what mm. what was working, and so that hasn't hit them yet. So when y'all sold um, after uh, Charles Lewis passed away, how what tell me about how that was for you mentally because. I mean, selling a business that you started and that you've seen grow into, you know, everything that you had, could ever could have ever hoped for it to be, uh, that, that's got to be a really tough, tough journey. Yeah, I mean, I, I tried to put the face on for a minute, you know, I think for another year, we kind of um, kept going. And, uh, and I really believe that he wanted us to be you know, I still had that Nike dream in my head, echoing in my head, and I wanted to do that for Charles. I like let's build this to Nike for him. You know, let's let's yeah. keep him a part of it, keep his dream alive. And but at the end of the day, I just you know, when you start out on a mission with somebody and you're like on you're on your way to Everest and your partner, you guys are hiking up there and your friend halfway up doesn't make it. I'm going home, bro. Like, I mean, I'm just yeah. like, at that point, I'm, I'm like, I'm bringing this body home, you know, and I'm, 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 cause what got me up, what was going to get me up there. And a lot of people might be different. 
And I thought I was different. I thought I was. I wanted to take it up to, you know, we wanted to climb the keep climbing the summit to the summit. But man, every day just didn't feel the same anymore because of those conversations that we would have, you know, for eight hours straight inside of a Carl's Jr. We didn't have those conversations anymore. That yeah. wasn't there anymore. And it just kind of took the wind out of my sails. And I just said, look, it's not that I still don't want the company to go on. I, I still want it to be I've never forgotten. I still want it to be remembered. Um, I still want, um, you know, tap out to always be remembered as part of what, you know, grew the UFC, especially in the early days. I think it'll always be a part of that conversation. But I just didn't have, I didn't feel it anymore in my gut. It didn't get me up in the morning anymore. And I just felt like it was time to pull out. And so we started looking for, you know, some, some buyers. So you sold what, uh, another 18 months or two years after that? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Towards the end of 2010, I think. How did well, he, he left a, he, I mean, he left a huge void, um, in, in the entire sport. Right. And that's, that's evidenced by the UFC putting him in the Hall of Fame. And for people that maybe started watching MMA after 2010 or, or, or I don't know, had their head up their butt during that time, like they don't recognize how significant that is. That is, that is the founder of Nike being in the Basketball Hall of Fame, right? Like that just doesn't happen anywhere else. And so for him to yeah. get that recognition, you know, it's not only him getting that recognition, it's the, it's the company, it's the mission, it's the whole crew getting that recognition from the sport. Um, yeah, I like that. That makes all the sense that you would feel this energy suck uh, within the company too during that time. Yeah, I mean, he's. I mean, to my knowledge, he's the only non-fighter in the in the uh, Hall of Fame for the UFC. So, I mean, that means a lot to us. I I just think we always want to be a part of the conversation. I I it was, it was, um, you know, when we were building in. Luckily enough, we're you know we were. I just look back at all the great people whose backs this sport was built on, you know, guys like that will never be remembered. Like, um, you know, there's guys out there like Travis Fulton, um, yeah. Shannon Rich right now has the most MMA fights of any person in history, I think. Um, and, you know, this guy has a hundred plus fights. Travis Fulton and him used to like compete every fight that somebody asked if they need a fighter, they just call them up and go, Hey man, can you fight on uh, September 16th? Uh, we're fighting in Iowa. Uh, yeah, you're gonna fly me out. I get the normal 300 bucks. Okay, I'll be there. <laughs> you know, it's like these guys who fight everywhere, and you know, those guys, I don't know how much they'll be remembered. And it's sad because I hope somebody, you know, they keep writing books and keep remembering these guys who helped build this sport because there were so many names out there, uh, so many guys who were famous at the beginning a friend of mine Eric Brink um, of Huntington Beach just passed away and unfortunately he was battling with other demons and stuff in his life but I mean that was a guy when you heard like Aaron Brink is fighting on this card you know you, you're you were like oh man you gotta go watch this fight but this is these are underground illegal fights yeah. in California that nope you had to use like a secret password to go into I can remember going into this um, there was a, uh, a fight called Neutral Grounds and you have to went into this U-Haul dealership. It was a big warehouse and it had like a little front counter U-Haul dealership. And you would have, you give the secret code, you pay your 40 bucks and you walk through the door and you went into this back warehouse and they had a ring set up inside oh or a cage. God. 
and and two like short bleachers you know like those like uh or, or four short short bleachers that have like you know maybe 10 yeah. five ten <laughs> uh seats and uh you know i mean that's the early days of mixed martial arts and and all this that you see today was all built on those on the backs of those people and it's really i just hope they always get remembered because i know i really believe tap out will be a part of that conversation forever oh yeah i i i agree 100 percent. so how did you after that time you know there's this sale and and you're making a, a massive change in your life and there's got to be this point where you're you're grieving not only for the the loss of your friend but probably the loss of of tap out because you're, you've sold it and, you, and you've got to look at how do i decide what i'm doing next how did you go through that process of deciding where you were going to move on from there well good question but honestly um we uh the truth is i got kind of a slow letdown because um i stayed on for five more years as president of the company so and and me and straight were you know our other partner was um still part of that building the brand and still doing those things we weren't as involved you know because there was no um they worked in a different way uh they went to a licensing format so uh, we were a production company so we were putting together products building products in-house and uh, printing in-house on some in some cases too so a lot of that stuff was being built in-house or at least it was being designed and put together in-house where they, they went to a licensing format so they had outside licensees licensing the t-shirts licensing shoes licensing other products and so our day basically consisted of going to this you know uh going to the shirt guys on uh one day and talking about designs and looking at the designs that they came up with and going yay yay, yay. that's where all those problems came up you know we're you're like man this is horrible like how do we how do we tell you like we need to change this but this is what the retailers love this is what they want you know so we would go through that daily and the, the battle for that almost became too much it was almost more stress than it was worth at, at some point because you're just constantly battling where we were in our own environment and could make those decisions and you know we were the final word now we were the almost the final word because they were the actual franchisee and they had to so short of the product hurting the brand they could put out whatever they want did you did you find that your framework for decision making changed when you moved from being the you know essentially the sole owner and decision maker to now you're not the owner and you've got to deal with this other party how did you reference your decisions when you were saying oh I don't want you to do this. I want you to do that. I approve this. I don't approve that. How were you? Well, how did that change? Well, um, you know, I'd like to say I was better. Um, but I have to say that you get beat up, you get worn out and, and it was different. Like I said, it was just different when everything landed on you, you were okay to make that decision. Let it land on me. I'm good. I'm good. This is the decision I want to make. If it doesn't work, I understood how that played out. I understood the consequences. I understood we might lose a little bit of money, but I always took educated risks because I felt like if it doesn't work out, we could still move the product here. We could still do this. 
We could still leave it up on the website. Nobody knows that it's not working or working. They don't see how much quantity we have or if we sold a million of them or two of them. So online, a lot of that stuff we pushed online and on the online business was always a good business for us, you know, doing 30 or $40 million a year on there. So it was always a good business for us. So we, we, we enjoyed using that as a way to stabilize the business. But when you're in retail and these guys are basically telling you, well, we can put out what we want, you know, as long as it doesn't hurt the company, um, we're looking for you guys to help influence. And they really would try to help us, but we're like, this is not, good like do you have a different artist like this is not good i do not like this artist i don't like the way they're printing um uh you know they put all oh, what all the bells and whistles are on there look the little rubber thing on the <laughs> sleeve and that and you're like yeah but it was so much nicer when it was a little gritty you know when it wasn't the little rubber thing on the sleeve and we had the little just regular woven label here you know it was like it, it just things changed so in some ways i got beat up in some ways, I made a lot of bad decisions, and I wish not necessarily that they were even decisions. They were just lack of decision, and a lack of decision will kill your company. I mean, people, that's that's sometimes the worst thing you can do. Was there was there something that you struggled with deciding about you know, that you say the lack of no, decision? No, not necessarily. Was- it was just um, always, I, I mean, lack of decision by going, okay, you know. what? Yeah, okay, you couldn't find it anymore. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. I understand you guys spent, you know, 40 days on this and you guys have changed it 10 times and or we haven't been able to find a happy medium and this is what you got. You got to go out tomorrow and this needs, this is due right now. So do what you got to do. Did yeah, you find some of that, 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 that having that, be, being in that situation began to dilute the brand for you or dilute your connection to it? If you're saying, oh, all right, you know, that's not what I would have done. That doesn't really speak to me, but, you know, go ahead, do it anyway. Oh, absolutely. I mean, at one point they made a decision to change the logo and me and Scrape were like, you know, I mean, behind closed doors, we were out of our minds. You know, we didn't, we were like, change the logo. You're like, that's, that's what, what we the, yeah. the logo is the, we're Nike. Yeah. 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 You don't, well, you don't like change the swoosh, swoosh if you're Nike. Yeah. Right. Swoosh. Yeah. And, and, and not only that, they turned it into a logo that was like, um, it's hard. I mean, anybody who's a, who's worked on like, who's an artist who will get this, but it was like, um, it was like a standard font, you know, it was basically like, oh man, anybody could just use, turn on their, their old print shop, uh, uh, software (laughs) and write tap out and then push that button and then boom, it turns into that logo. It was a horrible, to me, it was, a, I mean, you know, I mean, of course, time told because I switched it back. But, <laughs> um, but you know, for me, it was just horrible. It was like we had created a logo that took an artist to draw it. And now they want to switch it to some like standard font. It just What was their thinking behind that? What was the rationale behind? Because that's a big decision. I mean, yeah. the, tap out logo is the brand. So why would it's, they It's change? a very, very recognizable. Oh, logo. yeah. Yeah, what was the thought behind making a change like that? Pretty significant. I think it was um, to, I talked about the change of how things had changed throughout, um, around that time in 2010 and 2008, 2009, 2010. And uh, at that time, they were kind of, you were still trying to make that change. 
and like we were trying to find our footing. And so I, I want to say this, I, I'm throwing a date out there, but I could be off like two or three years. <laughs> it's uh, we, ju- we changed the logo maybe around 2014. And it was, um, they were just trying to distance themselves from what was out there. Yeah, uh, it, and what they had already put out, what was old tap out, what they would call old tap out. Yeah, and so okay. used to look and go. That was the quick fix, right? That wasn't like to me. That wasn't the let's put in the work fix. That was like let's just fix it real quick. We'll change the yeah. logo and see. Look see, it's our company now, Dan. It's ours now. We've got this new logo. Yeah. I've, I see that happen a lot with uh, with b- business. Oh, businesses that go through a transition to new ownership is a lot of times the the new ownership uh, has a need to prove themselves or a need to, you know, put their stamp on it, kind of put their brushstrokes on the artwork. And that's hard when it's not your artwork, but you, but you bought it, right? <laughs> you, you bought yeah. the artwork. You, you're not the artist. Um, so mm-hmm. it's in your living room. You can do whatever you want. You know, I can swipe a big red pen right across a Picasso as long as I own it. Um, but it's probably going to look terrible. But a lot of I see a lot of business owners do that. Buy a business, they feel like they've got to put their stamp on it instead of taking a step back, saying, "Hey, you know what made this special was the art that came before me. That's why I bought it in the first place." I mean, that's a perfect example. You know, I mean, I I couldn't come up with a better example. That was a perfect example. This is, they buy a Picasso, they pay fifty four million dollars, hundred million dollars, whatever, three hundred million dollars. And they bring it home, they put it on their wall, and they go, you know what, this needs this this whole area over here's got no nothing on it. I don't really like how I did that stroke. And they just pull out their paintbrush <laughs> and they start painting. I mean, you know, that I, to me that's not a good decision. Um, but you have to respect that they paid a, a lot of money for this company and they can, you know, make that it's theirs to make that decision with now. Yeah, you gotta and, gotta grit your teeth and we were and still at a piece it. of it, but yeah. We were still living with them, but they obviously, you know, they were the ones who had came in and taken a chance on it. And we respected that decision and we wanted to push, you know, we were still, as hard as some of that was, that's always behind closed doors. You know, we wanted to put on a good face and come out with great product and just keep, yeah, maybe this is off or that's off or, you know, all of a sudden this, you know, this product's coming out and you're like, don't agree with this or that. But you still wanted to be proud of certain products, you know, certain things that are coming out. Yeah, um, I'm still proud of, you know, there's still, I think the name could be strong forever. Who knows what this morphs into right now? They're doing a really, really good number with um, the tap out drinks right now and that are in, um, you know, all over the place. And I, I think those, that's doing great. And so, you know, I'd love to be able to see if that's all it turned out to be. And I see tap out drinks for the next, 50 years, um, I'll be good with that too. Yeah. What, what is most exciting to you, uh, as far as the projects in post tap out life? Um, I think the most exciting thing to me is, you know, I, I, I got married after that. I had, I had kids, I, I, I had kids previously, but I had never been married and, um, I just am building this family and building my kids and uh, I think introducing my kids, like using my kid be sitting right here. Yeah. But uh, I just want him, t- I want my kids, all my kids who are all great at what they do, all really amazing athletes and 
personalities and they each are have their own individual uh you know thing that they do and they're just all so great i love watching my kids grow up into those things and yeah I'm, uh, it always excites me to wonder where they're going to be you know 20 years from now and as for my my little one daniel who you know our two little ones who live with us um daniel and destiny they're just they got so much personality and yeah. daniel's a speaker i just had him speak in front of three thousand people you know standing oh, on awesome. stage wow delivering this 10 minute speech and how, how old is he memorized he's he's uh six so, so and, you bring him in already at age six into the work that you're doing oh that's that's i mean that's what you know yeah. we have a podcast called the pretty and punk podcast about kids and entrepreneurs about being an entrepreneur raising kids and it's such a i feel like that whole life is is such a weird push and pull dynamic yeah. because you have a love for your business but you love your kids too. You love your kids more than anything in the world, but you love your business more than anything in the world. And some things are pulling you towards your business because if you just threw your hands up and said, oh, I, you know, I just got to do my family thing, your business is going to crash yeah. and burn. Yeah, you can't and pick the and they don't have thing, to be separate. But the problem is, is that so many people do pick. Yeah. They pick their business and their family crashes and burns. And so how many people you see, how many entrepreneurs do you see you know, at the end of the day, they get done and they turn around and there's fire and destruction behind them. Yeah. And they've lost their family. They've lost, their kids won't talk to them. And oh, I know a lot. I, I know just, a lot of guys like that. that I know a lot, a lot. A lot of wealth advisors like that. Yeah. You know, they're, they're crushing it. They're making, you know, more than anybody else has ever dreamed of making in the industry. But, you know, they're on wife number four and and their kids yeah. moved as far across the country as they could to not ever talk to them again. Right. But yeah, I think bringing your kids into your business, Dan, is like the greatest gift you can give to them. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, that's what Sean did for me. And it took me a while, you know, to realize what type of advantage that was, he was giving me. And, and I don't mean, you know, giving your kid a job in the business. I mean, giving him an insight into what it is that dad does day in and day out. And it's a, 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 a liberty that entrepreneurs have, right? You know, if, if we worked in an office somewhere in a skyscraper downtown, we wouldn't be able to bring you know, our children into the business to see what dad does every day. But as a business owner, you can do that. And you can say, hey, come check out what we're doing. Check out the craft. Check out this, what is putting food on the table uh, for you and your sister and that's what my dad always did for me. I knew what dad did to put money on the table. Like I would go and to school and ask other kids, like, what does your dad do? And 90% of them had no idea what their dad did. And I'd go, really? like, you're a loser. How do you not know what your dad did? First of all, you're a loser. Second of all, your dad's a loser. How do you not know what your dad does? Right. I was like, I know yeah. exactly what my dad does. I could give a, a classroom presentation on what my dad does. And that's because he communicates it with me. We talk about it and I get to see the craft, you know, and the younger I was, the less I got to see, but the older I got, the more he would let me in and say, Hey, this is how you do this. You know, these are the skills that you're not going to learn. If you go get a job in this industry, you, you only learn by doing it for 30 years or, or whatever. And that's what we used to do for our children when we worked at the homestead, right? When we, when we were blacksmiths and woodworkers, that's what we did is we said, hey, son, 
you're about five or six now. So time to learn how to weld or whatever right. the yep. craft right. was. And we taught yep. them the craft from the time they were about your son's age. And then when they became an adult, they were better than anyone who could ever choose. They had to, competency. They, yeah. were, a, they, they were master craftsmen. Yeah. Yep. They were master craftsmen. And when you start at 22, you start your craft at 22 after you, you know, study a bunch of irrelevant topics in college and, and goof off in high school. You can never be as good as that kid who started when he was six. And so you're giving your children an, a, like the most unfair advantage over their peers that you could possibly give them. Yeah, I got to say, saying that was a perfect explanation. That was, um, and, and that's exactly, exactly what we preach is that like introduce, I mean, Sean, you know this, that you guys probably have the best job in the world. We all as dads yeah. hope <laughs> yeah. that one day our kids are even going to want to be next to us, you know, even going to want to be in, in the same city as us, let alone working with us, you know, we hope for that. We pray for that. And I also you know, I hope that they go on and do whatever they want to do, that they do that the best they can do too. Um, but I want to give them the tools because nobody's going to teach them at school how to do what we do. No, no one's going to, I mean, they're not going to have those skills. And you said it perfectly when you said at 20 years old, when they go out on the, you know, they go out there and hit the market and they're trying to figure out what to do in life. They're, in today's world, especially, no time more than right now, right now. If they're going to be so far behind that the, I don't know that they'll ever be able to catch up. That if you're not learning the skills you need early on, you'll just never be able to catch up. Go ahead, Sean. Yeah, sir. well, I, I think you're doing it so so smart. When it, when I see a lot of guys who commit only to work, you know, and the, and they fail to recognize what that success is really costing them, and it's you know, and, and it's costing them that connection with purpose of raising raising you know a, their their kids. And I, I say when I when I look at our job as as dads is our job is to help our kids work is to work ourselves out of a job right you know our job as a parent is to work ourselves out of a job and what i always wanted to do was give my kids two things one is competency and doing that by taking them places where they gained experience because you know people who have knowledge are better than people who are ignorant, but people who have experience are better than people who have knowledge because your experience will trump that. So I would take them places and, and, and have them do things and get them to that point of competency. But the other thing that I, that I always wanted to do was to dole out that responsibility as I worked out, worked myself out of a job by Saying, okay, this year you're a year older. You have now this privilege. Yeah, we would get right? birthday privileges. Yeah, every year. So, okay, you can <laughs> cut your hair however you want. Take your room however you want. Um, wear whatever you want. Choose your own food. And just dole out those responsibilities and those privileges over time so that when the time came where they were an adult, it wasn't a big shock to their system. So that was yeah. the first thing I tried to do is, is kind of develop competency. And the other was develop a sort of a clarity of purpose by connecting to faith, having family principles, understanding what the rules of, of interactions were in restaurants and social settings and other types of things. So I figured yeah. if I could do those, then, you know, I've, I've, I'm halfway there. Yeah, Dan, do you, do you have your kids recite rules in the backseat of the car when you're taking them out in public? Because that is what my dad <laughs> We would have. Rules? We would have. Tell like, me more about. So we that, would have. I may have to steal some of this. Is, this was actually. This was one of the best. I mean, I could. 
we could talk for a lot about the things that I think he did well that I'm like, when I have children, they're, they're we're doing this thing. Um, right. But the, the restaurant rules is one of my favorite. So when we were going, and we went out to eat a lot because he worked a lot, right? So it was like, hey, man, I'm done with a long day. Let's go, like, let's go somewhere good and eat. And so we would have, you know, and this is rules for this, how you behave in public. And they were inside voice, stay in your chair, eat your food. Very simple. Inside voice, stay in your chair, eat your food. But I'm four years old in the backseat of the SUV. And dad goes, all right, what's the restaurant rules? Inside voice, stay in your chair, eat your food. (laughs) And then we'd go out with maybe other families and I'd see some little twerp running around causing a scene, (laughs) you know, yelling at his sister or whatever it was and looking like an idiot. And it made me so, Oh, Whoa, what is, what's going on? What's going on with him? But then I was able to grow into an adult that was able to behave and, and and interact with the adults when I was a kid. And, and there were a lot of, I mean, that's so perfectly done. Like, I love that. And there's always a balance because I'm always arguing with myself in my own head, you know, but and we do the same thing with our kids. We don't have to recite the rules, but they're actually really, really, really good at, at in restaurants for us. And they they don't own iPads or anything like yeah. that. So we're, we don't, you know, we're not one of the, we don't sit them down in front of an iPad. When they get in there, they sit up nice. We usually have them dress nice. Our kid will wear, you know, when we go to a nicer restaurant, he's wearing a jacket and a bow tie. You know, we walk into this restaurant. I'm actually the underdressed one because yeah. I'm still wearing the t-shirt. <laughs> but we'll have him have conversation. He'll he'll we'll have him go up and speak to the manager and tell him what he liked about the the food and um and how you know whatever whatever he liked about the experience. We'll have him go up and have that conversation with the manager. Um, we'll have him ask questions about how they do something. So he'll always have a, a compliment, a question that he'll give. Um, we just and I, and again, like I try to balance that. What is what I don't, I don't, I also don't want them to be too subdued where they're not willing to jump out and ask those questions and have those conversations. Of course, they're mowing the lawn here today. Um, but I want them to be vocal. I want them to be energetic. I want them to have that too. So that's the fight in me, the dichotomy of, you know, uh, having this conversation, I want them to be conversationalist and have energy, but I also want them to be well-behaved. And so we're always balancing our rules to those two things, you know, how can we keep them? We want them to be great entrepreneurs because like, you know, if you don't bring them to me, somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, actually, um, do you have to bring your kids to all your meetings? And I was like, <laughs> they always see me with my kids at my meet at these meetings that I go to. And I said, no, I get to bring my kids to all my meetings. Hell I want yeah. my kids. Yeah. If I don't teach them, hey, who's going to teach them to negotiate? Who's going to teach them to have these conversations? You know, uh, when you sit down in a meeting, it's a battle of wits. We went to go meet with Mark Wahlberg a, uh, a few weeks ago. And, you know, I knew that was going to be kind of a battle of, of, not a battle because we're doing something together. You know, we're yeah, like, right, we're having right. this conversation, but I'm happy to bring him into this deal. And it's going to be him telling me his side and me telling him my side. I needed my kids to see that. I yeah. need my kids to see that. They have to be able to do that when they get, when they get old enough to build their businesses. So I think that 
having your kids understand all those things. I love what you guys are doing. The first thing you guys said when you introduced yourselves, I was like, that, like, dude, a little piece of me just went, man, I hope my kids, I hope we can do something cool like that when they're old enough because I love you're giving them a, a huge advantage. They're going to have seen hundreds of business interactions, social settings, those types of things. You are giving them such an advantage. Such uh, an advantage. Yeah. yeah. Massive. I remember, uh, like, you a football fan? Uh, decently. I'm an MMA fan. That, that, everything okay. other than that, I kind of know about. Okay. So there's a, a, head, a um, head coach of the, fo- of the uh, San Francisco 49ers, Kyle Shanahan. And when he was hired by the 49ers, or his dad is Mike Shanahan, who was a coach for many teams, one yeah, of which was I know all the, the Shanahan. Right. I know the Shanahan. Okay. Yeah. So um, I remember when Kyle Shanahan was hired by the 49ers, there was a little bit of talk in the media that he only got hired because he's Mike Shanahan's son. And I was reading it on my phone, sitting next to my dad, and I go, he didn't get hired because he is Mike Shanahan's son. He got hired because he's Mike Shanahan's son, meaning he was around these teams when he was a kid. He saw the insights knows, of how you he draw. He knows it. Yeah. <laughs> he knows way more about football than anybody who started when they were in college could ever dream about knowing. So, yeah, he got it because he's Mike Shanahan's son. But he got it because he's Mike Shanahan's Exactly. <laughs> and, and that's that, so true. I love that. <laughs> So and that's it, you know what and and I say, and that's so perfect because how many entrepreneurs do you know like are so you know like trying to separate everything you know you think of uh you know Steve Jobs's daughter came out with uh I think Lisa came out with this book you know where she's you know obviously not totally bad mouth or yeah but you know they were so broken that her his daughters or any of his kids I don't know how much they knew about his business. But you could see, obviously, he was a thousand percent into his business. Yeah. And then maybe he was really good with his kids when he came home. But they definitely probably didn't understand everything that he was doing. Unfortunately, yeah. you know, wait, um, they were too young, but they were younger and his his older or his younger kids. But, you know, like you just you have to I mean, I don't know how I had, you know, these two young ones, you know, they're younger. They're three and six and they're they're not going to. You know, I don't know how long I'm going to be around. All you know, right now, you know, I just, you know, I'm in my, uh, I just turned 51, and I'm not, you know, I don't know how long I'm going to be around. I have to give them their tools right now, and to me, I'm I'm on borrowed time. I, I, I always said after I get after 50, I'm on borrowed time. I mean, not that I don't want to live to be 80, yeah, but I never thought I'd live this far anyway. So you know, I was a police officer. I was kicking in doors and you know, flying out windows and I, I've, you know, done everything that I probably shouldn't do. And that <laughs> probably almost killed me a million times. I've been shot at a million times. I can't even count how many times I've heard bullets whizzing by my head. It bullet whizzing by your head is a, it's a crazy thing. The first time you ever hear it, you hear this. Oh. And you're like, what is that? And you realize it took me like 10 seconds to realize I was being shot at. Oh. Um, but you know, those are the things that, you know, I'm on borrowed time. I'm over 50 years old now. And so everything about what I do is trying to prepare everything in my life for my kids to go on and find their own greatness. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know everything, but I do know this. 
that I always felt like um, that, oh, my, my parents, they, they were amazing parents. I mean, they're amazing parents. They're still married today. Um, they, they gave me this great foundation. But a lot of what I didn't know, and I think a lot of what, you know, I even go, um, I wish I would have been introduced to, like my son pushing him in front of a crowd to speak in front of 3,000 people. I have him do uh, affirmations every day. We pray every morning, affirmations. Then he does uh, he does a quote or, you know, some sort of speech or a poem or something. And then, um, and then we do prayers at night and uh, gratefulness at night. And we just, we do that because I want him to understand all of it. I want to feed his brain so much. He's homeschooled. Um, I want to give him every tool that he needs. And I still feel like I'm, you know, I still feel like, you know, like if your son and you get this, Sean, your son's about to go to battle and you want to give him every tool, you know, everything is on the line. And you're trying to teach him all of the sword fighting and everything that he could do and ground fighting and everything because you know, man, if he don't win this, you're gonna he may not come back. And that's how I feel about business and things that he's doing. I want him to have every tool that he needs. What's up, buddy? Yeah, I'll, just give me a few minutes, okay? Hey, put him on. Yeah, <laughs> okay. and we're talking about you. Yeah, dude. we're talking about you. <laughs> there he is. Affirmation, like what you did. Oh, um, I, I'm sorry. I was, I was doing a podcast, buddy. I was doing some, aff- he was, he said, he said his mom did his affirmations and I didn't do his affirmations. With him. Okay. <laughs> well, we're sorry for yeah. keeping dad from you from we're affirmation for time dad. today. We'll start for keeping dad from you. Hey, could you what? do, could you do man in the arena for them? Sure. Peter Roosevelt once said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points up. And the strong man's stomach, or what the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belonged to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face stripes, who's marred, who's marred by dust and sweat and blood, who just actually strive to do the deeds with most great enthusiasm, great devotion, Spends himself on a worthy cause, what best knows in the end, the triumph of high achievement, what the wars. If he fails, at least he failed well down great. So that place shall never be those cold and timid need no victory, no defeat. Heck yeah, man. Hey, man! That was hey, awesome. You are the man in the arena, and you'll keep, you'll be the man in the arena in the future, dude. Good job, buddy. Well, hey, Dan, you, you know what I, you know what I loved about that? What's that? Is that so many times that and and this is you know we've been doing this podcast for a while. There, there are times when people will come in and they'll they'll. They'll, they'll, swash they'll shush them away. away. They'll swash them away. They go, no, no, no. You know, hey, Dad's doing this. You know, you have to go away. I'll get to you later. And what you did just then is you brought him in, and you put him on, and you lived out exactly what you were saying. And had you shoved him away, you would have been so full of shit. <laughs> and none of what we had spent the last hour yeah. talking about would have had any resonance. But you were living. And you know what? I almost did. You're and walking your did. talk, well, man. Just- you're walking. You didn't your have a mic, so I was like, "Oh shoot!" Yeah, because normally I'd mic him up, 
if we're on our mics, uh, when we're at the podcast studio, we can, you know, we'll all have mics and stuff. But I realized that he didn't have a mic, so I was like, oh, okay, well, they're not going to be able to hear you, but, you know. No, you, you see, did it. Use- you did it. Well, yeah, yeah you, awesome. you didn't get to yeah. experience it today because our producer's on vacation, but normally she would sit there, do the audio check, video check with you with her child in her lap. Um, so, oh, awesome. <laughs> and it's kind yeah. of a test for us because we can gauge if somebody doesn't like the fact that she's got her kid there, you know, we're probably not going to get along, but if their eyes light yeah. up and they go, Oh, that's so cool. You get to work with your daughter right there. Then we know, Hey, there are people. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure you would have been in the category of, Oh man, this is so cool. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, we all want to understand skill sets. I love when I walk into a business and I see, I, I ask sometimes, you know, you see the kid and the kid kind of looks like the lady working at the off, you know, yeah, yeah. you're like, I'm, yeah. And she goes, you know, there. I'm. We were just at this uh, vacation place, and we went to this little store, side store, like a little um, convenience store. And it looked like the whole family is working. Their dads in the back, stocking the shelves. You know, sons up front working the cash register. Mom comes walking up. And we're like, is is that your son? And and oh yeah, and that's my husband back there. We're like, we just talked to him for like thirty minutes. You know, just admiring the fact that they get to go through that. Because like you said earlier, Sanger, that you know, this is how families grew up you know working in the in the in the fields or farm or a uh, small mercantile or whatever it was that's how america was built that's how uh, for thousands of years that's how we built our our businesses you know because that's all you had a family were was a unit that worked together for success and for protection and uh and i don't think Things have changed as much as people would like to think they have. Yeah. Hey, Dan, you're making some great decisions. Uh, what would you say would be your final decision-making tip for business owners and leaders? A decision-making tip? Um, you know, I think what I had to learn as a leader that, and that, believe me, I like, I struggled with that for a long time. Like, I never felt, and I still feel like, you know, in some ways, like, you always feel that imposter syndrome um, because everything rests on your shoulders and you feel like, well, am I, I, you know, I didn't, I don't have an MBA. I'm not, I, I never graduated from Harvard. You know, I'm not that guy. Um, I'm just a regular dude who's seen a lot. And at the end of the day, I just tell leaders that they have to make a decision. The decisions, what everybody's scared to do is make a decision. But the truth is any decision better than no decision because they're look, people are looking at you. Your people are looking to you. To make a decision, if you decide the Himen and Han is what it, it will kill a company, yeah, that will kill a company faster than making a decision because a decision, and not that you're, you got to trust that you know, not that a bad decision is a good decision, but a bad decision is better than no decision. And when you're, you have, you got to trust your skill set. You've seen a lot in your life. You've gone through a lot of these, um, these issues already. You're seeing these same issues come up over and over again. You're a firefighter at, at its best. And you somebody gives you a decision to make. You just have to make a decision. Just make a quick, good decision the, to the best of your ability and um, and live with it and own up to it. And if it, if it goes sideways, you fix it and you keep moving on. But make a decision. Love it. Love it. Thanks, Dan. Um, where can people connect with the work that you're doing and find your podcast? Um, the, uh, we call it the pretty and punk po- podcast for entrepreneurs with kids. 
Um, we, we're just relaunching it. So we've been out for about a year. I was doing a lot of consulting for different companies and I'm still consulting. So I'm doing a lot of that still, but we were so missing our podcast. It's just like a piece of our life that was missing. And so, you know, and I love what you guys are doing. So we get to do a podcast, me and my wife. And I feel like that's really, you know, just talking through all the stuff that we talked about today. A lot of the stuff we talked about today, business and kids and how it all works together and get a woman's perspective from it because she sees things totally different than I see things. So, yeah. you know, podcast, the Pretty Punk podcast uh, for entrepreneurs with kids. And then also uh, we just signed up for this this new app called Intro, where we do consulting and coaching. So anybody who needs coaching, you can go to Intro and uh, and and get some con- coaching or consulting from us. Cool. Sweet, man. Hey, I love it. Yeah, thanks for being here, dude. That was great. Thanks a lot, Dan. Come back anytime. Hey, thanks, guys. What it struck me was looking at when you lose that passion, move on and move to passion and make make sure you're constantly making that decision to move to passion and that's that was my takeaway yeah my biggest takeaway is in order to align your actions with your responsibility as both an entrepreneur and a father uh, it requires a lot of work and it requires purposeful incorporation of those two lives and and I'm more convinced after talking to Dan that I ever have that incorporating those lives purposefully is not only a positively good effort, but it's a, it's a fulfillment of the responsibility of both the entrepreneur and the father to integrate those lives. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes not personalized advice.